Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. Let's finish our journey through Acts. Chapter 23 of Acts picks up with Paul before the Roman tribune answering charges. The tribune now convenes the Jewish council um, because he has determined that these things are really more about the Jewish faith, but he wants to hear and make sure it's resolved. However, this meeting is a very volatile situation. There's so much anger that it erupts. They strike Paul. They worry about a riot beginning to happen. Um, They really want to kill Paul. Paul uses the differences between the Sadducees and the Pharisees to cause a division. He uses it to his advantage to distract them away from himself. It also lets them, they appear ridiculous and out of control um, rather than him. He looks calm, remains collected, doesn't get involved in um doesn't get involved in the riotous kinds of responses to things. It does, however, get out of control, so much so that the tribune has to shut it down. We hear a plot now to kill Paul. More than 40 men take an oath not to rest, not to eat until they have killed Paul. But Paul's nephew hears about it and goes and tells him, they tell the tribune. Because of this, the tribune transfers Paul to Governor Felix. He moves him under cover of darkness, and he sends him with 200 soldiers to guard him. Forty Jewish men would not have been a match for 200 Roman soldiers. The letter that um, Claudius sends Claudius Lysias sends with him isn't quite accurate. Um, It's a little more flattering to himself. He makes himself sound better. He didn't really rescue Paul, um, but I think he's trying to explain why he's inserted in something that appears to be a Jewish religious matter. Once Paul arrives at Governor Felix's, he has to wait an additional five days before the Jewish accusers arrive to continue this. Chapter 24 continues with this trial or this hearing. Paul is now defending himself in a Roman venue and not a Jewish one. Ananias, the high priest, has consulted an attorney, Tertullus, and they're a little smarter than Sosthenes was from back in Acts chapter 18. They present the charges in political terms. They want to make it a threat to the Roman government so that the Romans will intervene. They they lawyered up and got a plan. Chapter 24, verse 5, uses the word sect, S-E-C-T. This can refer to a group like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but generally this particular form of the word carries a negative connotation, um, that it is a fringe group, a, an illegitimate group. So we get the charges delivered 
in verses 1 through 9, we get Paul's defense delivered in verses 10 through 21. Paul is able to match Tertullus's rhetorical skill. Paul is a good speaker as well. He's been trained in oratory, but Paul doesn't need to resort to the flattery and inflated claims that Tertullus did. There's no spin in what Paul says. Um, It's just not necessary. He gives a very straightforward and honest defense. Verses 17 through 19 are the first time that this bringing of alms to Jerusalem is mentioned, but it's a way of showing him as a faithful Jew, not somebody on the fringe of things. Felix is quite familiar with this movement called the Way. His wife is Jewish, and he is a well-informed governor. So this is not the first time he's heard this. They're going to have another delay, but Paul is going to be given favor and some freedom. So it indicates to us that um, Felix doesn't see Paul as a threat. He may be even inclined to side with him. A few days later, he's having another conversation with Paul, um, he and his wife, and he comes under conviction. He's bothered by this, but he does what too many people do. Rather than letting that conviction bring us to repentance and conversion, we remove ourselves from the situation. We run away. We avoid facing what God is trying to tell us. So then there's going to be a delay of two years. Felix just sends Paul back, kind of forgets about him, and moves on. Claudius never comes to to make a defense, to, to charge Paul. Felix leaves Paul in jail um, to gain favor with the Jews. There's no reason for him to stick his neck out. And then we finally get a new governor. So hands have changed. Chapter 25 Three days into the office as the new governor, Festus, um, has gone to Jerusalem, and the Jews want to talk about Paul. Um, I think it's interesting that the Jews are still this hot and angry about Paul after two years, but it's also important to remember that Paul isn't out of sight and out of mind. Paul is ministering from his imprisoned state. He's been given a pretty good bit of freedom. People can come to him and visit with him. He's teaching. He's preaching. He's writing letters. We have the prison apostles, um, the, the prison epistles, letters that he writes from prison. So the matter has not been put to rest. It's still as fresh and as angry for them as it was with Felix. Festus stays eight to ten days or so in Jerusalem and finally returns to Caesarea. He's wanting to please the Jews, like he doesn't want to turn the Jews against him, um, but he also wants to give Paul a fair hearing. Paul knows that it cannot go well for him in Jerusalem, so he appeals to the emperor. He appeals to Caesar, some of the translation says, and Festus realizes This is going to let him off the hook. He's not going to look bad to the Jews. He's not going to have to make a decision. He gets to pass the buck. So he gets to do everything that he wanted. In verse 13, King Agrippa comes to visit. King Agrippa is the son of Herod Agrippa from chapter 12. Bernice is his sister, not his wife, 
but is Bernice is his widowed sister. Bernice's older sister is Drusilla, who is Felix's wife. This implies that Bernice and Agrippa may not be full-blood siblings, um, but we know that this is family. This is an extended family coming to visit. Ananias and Tertullus turn out to have not been any more successful at making this intra-Jewish struggle a Roman political threat than Sosthenes was. Um, Here we hear pretty clearly that um, they're just not going to fall for that. Festus shares the story with Agrippa, and he's interested. He's interested in what he hears. Notice all the people who are getting to hear the gospel because of those who opposed it. Agrippa is a great audience for Paul, and there's great pageantry and pomp that is rolled out to this meeting and this hearing. He is declared innocent of the charges that were alleged against him by the Jews. They're trying to figure out, what what do I say? I, I now have to send him on to the imperial court because it's what he's asked for, but what do I say? Because he's innocent of what he's been charged of. Chapter 26, we see the fulfillment of the prophecy from chapter 9, 15, that he would bring Jesus' name before kings. That's exactly what's happening here. In verse 14, we hear for the first time that the voice that Paul heard on the Damascus road spoke in Hebrew. It's not really surprising. It's just the first time we've heard it said outright. Um, And it would mean that even others who might have heard the voice might not have understood it. Again, we have um, him being told that he's kicking against the goads. I explained this way back in his Damascus road experience, but the goad was a sharpened stick that they prodded cattle with when they were plowing. And sometimes an animal would kick out against it like they didn't like being stuck and they'd kick their leg, but that would actually make it hurt worse there. So it just means he was resisting Jesus drawing him toward him. Um, Paul is stubborn. Paul is doing what Israel was supposed to be doing. Um, The prophets, Moses, the prophecies in Moses' statements about the Messiah and the Messiah, he's simply continuing in that thread of what God said would happen and is happening. We have another mixed response. Um, Now that the governor understands that Paul means that Jesus was dead and resurrected, that's a step too far. That's too much for him to accept. Agrippa may be serious here, or he may be sarcastic in his, are you convincing me so easily to be a Christian? Whether he's serious or not, Paul is. Paul would absolutely like to convert him. We move into chapter 27, and we're going to have a story of Saul's journey to Rome. We get lots of specifics here, the name of the city, the name of the ship, the name of the centurion, all very specific to help us trace back what happens and find out that it is true to verify the facts. Paul's journey to Rome is going to fulfill the divine promise that he got back in 1921 and 2311. 
He has a small group of companions who are traveling with him. He's allowed to visit with friends when they stop in Sidon. Julius, the centurion that's given um, responsibility for him, knows that he's not a flight risk. He's the one who wants this hearing in Rome. Weather is going to hamper their ability to travel. When it mentions the fast, this is referring to the Day of Atonement, which is in the fall. This would have been a dangerous time for them to travel in the eastern Mediterranean area. You certainly didn't want to be out there in winter. You wanted to find a port to overwinter during a time of storms. Nevertheless, even though winter is coming, they're still going to set out. And there is a storm. And Paul's prediction is correct. They're going to face a storm, but they're all going to survive. I love that Paul just cannot resist saying, I told you so, in verse 21. It feels so like Paul (laughs) that he would do that. The worst of the storm lasts for three days, but the bad weather appears to last for 14 more. The ship may be somewhat damaged. They certainly have thrown a lot of stuff over, which may have included some of the equipment they needed to sail well. They appear to be a little at the mercy of the sea right now. Verse 37 says that there are 276 persons on the ship. Other sources, other manuscripts indicate that that number is 76. We don't know for sure which one it is. I'm only saying that different sources say different things. We believe the majority of the manuscripts indicate 276. That's a pretty good group of people traveling. They are eventually shipwrecked. The soldiers are planning to kill all of the prisoners now that they've run aground. They were responsible with their lives for their prisoners. If a prisoner escapes, it meant death to the guards who were responsible for them. And death at sea would have been an acceptable outcome. Allowing them to escape because of a shipwreck would not have been. So they're choosing um, what will basically save their skin. But this conflicts with Paul's promise that by God that he's going to arrive safe in Rome. It's interesting to me that it is the centurion's desire to save Paul, and his desire to do so ends up saving everyone else as well. Now we move into chapter 28, the final chapter of Acts. The story continues. They have shipwrecked and are actually at Malta. Paul ends up getting snake-bitten as he is gathering wood. In ancient Greek literature, justice was often personified. Um, Justice would become a person um, for the retribution, for the balancing of the scales, and sometimes as a literal person, sometimes as an animal. But clearly the people of Malta see Paul's snake bite as justice. He must have killed somebody because now he's going to die. They did know they were all prisoners coming off the ship. But when Paul doesn't die, they change their minds and go to the opposite extreme. Now Paul is a god. This is not the first time that this has happened. Um, They are mistaken for gods. Excuse me. They are mistaken for gods in Acts chapter 14, verse 11 previously. It's a constant temptation for the people of God to make it about us. 
the more authority we are given, the more power we are given, the more gifts of the Spirit we are given to use, the more the temptation to let it become about us. Um, We must be on a constant, we must be vigilant about making sure we always point people to God through Jesus and not to ourselves. They end up being there for around three months. They make it through the winter, and they finally go on to Rome, this time on a ship that bears the twin brothers. The twin brothers are Castor and Pollux, the twin sons of Zeus and Leda, the gods of navigation. Um, So in other words, they're going to get on a ship that carries more good luck than the last one they did. In verse 16, we see that Paul is given even more freedom and favor. Um, He's still imprisoned, still doing ministry from an imprisoned state, but he has an awful lot of freedom. It wouldn't have felt very much like being a prisoner. Although he's there for a Roman hearing, it's interesting to me that he once again meets with Jewish leaders. This person who keeps repeating that he is called to the Gentiles— keeps meeting with Jews everywhere that he goes. This time, I believe he gathers the Jewish leaders because he wants to gauge what they know about him and how much opposition there is to him. The Jewish leadership, however, affirms that no one has come to talk about Paul, to to rile them up. They haven't even sent a letter about all of this. They're interested in hearing more about this. They've heard about the way. They want to hear more about Jesus, but they acknowledge that everywhere they've heard about it, it's been spoken against. However, they're willing to hear for themselves. They want firsthand knowledge, not secondhand knowledge. We should always, whenever possible, prefer firsthand knowledge rather than second. So Paul gets to preach in Rome. This is a long sermon, all day long, um, that he unfolds all of this to him. We probably should view this more as an extended Bible study, like when we go on retreat, um, perhaps broken up into sessions over the course of the day, um, or an ongoing conversation that people might have to come into, and there would be meals and bathroom breaks and all of that kind of stuff. But it's a very long day of explaining this to them. And once again, the response is divided. However, there's no hostility among those who feel one way or the other. On the other hand, while they don't seem hostile at one another, Paul feels a little hard here. He quotes Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10 to them. He basically calls them hard of listening. Um, They have spiritual deafness and, and blindness. And Paul indicates once again that he's going to focus on the Gentiles. This continues for two years. Your translation may say that he does this at his own expense. Other variations will say in his own dwelling. Um, It doesn't appear that he's free yet, although he may be. They may have at some point just simply quit caring about Paul being under some sort of house arrest and just it'd be infrequent that somebody would stop and check on him. But we never hear any resolution to this Roman appeal. We never hear whether or not he gets his hearing or there's any 
type of outcome there. Um, Luke chooses to end his story here on a high note with Paul doing good, wonderful, and effective ministry. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Um, So Luke chooses to end his narrative right there. We don't know the outcome for Paul necessarily. Tradition holds that Paul was beheaded as part of the Christian, excuse me, that Paul was beheaded as part of Christian executions by the Emperor Nero in 64. So about seven years after these events, um, he is beheaded. You may often hear, this is the last chapter, Acts ends with the end of chapter 28, but you may have heard reference to Acts 29, There are books written called Acts 29. There's been a movement called the Acts 29 movement. The idea of that is that we are the story of Acts 29, that this story of the the apostles' actions in the early church continues, that the story's really never over. The ending here at the end of Acts is almost a pause. It doesn't feel like a conclusion. If this is the end of the story, it feels like Luke should have said something like, and this, my dear friend Theophilus, is the complete story of Jesus of Nazareth, who he was and what we are doing, and now make you a decision about how you feel about it. Instead, he just ends the, the story, and he did this for, for two more years afterwards. Um, the story continues. We are Acts chapter 29. So that takes us through the book of Acts, whether you call it Acts of the Apostles or Acts of the Holy Spirit. The story continues with us.